Straight out of the heart of Texas, here come the students of conflict, helping you become a better Malifaux player and reach the top of the podium, one game at a time. Welcome to Students of Conflict. We are Clay and Doug tonight. Hello! Hello! <laughs> and we are trying to become better Malifaux players. We're leveling up ourselves and hopefully leveling others up as well. We do that by interviewing top third players from the Lone Star Conference that are playing in Malifaux tournaments across the U.S. We're not trying to capture the entire tournament journey here. We want to just take an in-depth look at a single game from each of our guests. What were the key decisions that they made before the game, during the game, and now looking back at the game, what were the things that they learned that they can pass on to others? Our basic format is to interview our guests all at once, just as soon as possible after the tournament, where it's all fresh in their minds and we can get some good crossflow between the guests. And then rather than publishing one long marathon podcast, we break it up, releasing one individual podcast per guest, helping people level up one game at a time. Today, we are speaking with Andre, Ryan, and Carlo. Hello. What up? What's up? Outcast for life, baby. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he said. There we go. Awesome. <laughs> These guys came in third, fourth, and first at the March Malifaux Monthly Tournament held in Houston on 11 March. And we're going to be releasing our discussions with them as episodes 5A, 5B, and 5C. So we're going to go ahead and get this going. So we've got Ryan here this evening. And uh, first of all, congratulations on being here. You are a first-time guest, and we are super happy to have you here, right? I'm happy to have me, too. Look out! That's awesome. I'm my favorite uh, fan. So, for our uh, for our first time guests, we like having just a quick background on how you actually got into Malifaux. Well, I actually had started playing miniatures games a long time ago. I think right at the start of third edition 40k. So I'd been playing a lot of stuff, and at the time, I was playing War Machine pretty heavily, and I was looking nice. for something new, uh, smaller. Like uh, I was just tired of playing whole big armies. I wanted a focused experience ran into Malifaux first edition and I was super into it, but I didn't have a player base. Uh, so, and then by second edition, when it first dropped, I reached out, uh, met the Montags crew like Travis and dreads and a few others. And they stomped me into Malifaux, but, uh, yeah, I'd been playing ever since. I think that was 2013, uh, when I first started it. So that is fantastic. Have you been a, a outcast player for, for this whole time? Interesting, funny story. I bought, I got into the game because of the models, bought Masaki, and uh, okay. realized Masaki is not my style. <laughs> like, they stomped me and basically told me, like, what I was doing wrong. So then I immediately switched to Vix as the, the second crew I bought just because of the models, and it just clicked. I think, Doug, you and I were, uh, your, our game against your Marcus was one of my first ones with Victoria's. And that was when I killed Kojo and Miranda and Marcus all in one whirlwind. And I thought, this is me. Like, this is what I like. I um, can do this. But yeah, that was my start. And since then, it was pretty much exclusively outcasts. I, I'd blocked out that traumatic memory. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm having flashbacks now. Hashtag just Vix things. Yeah, man. Oh, it's hashtag bring back Vix one. Like, oh, man. I still play them. I still play them a lot. I love them. How can you? Minimum damage five ignores everything, including your protests. Like, I miss that. But 
anyways, besides that, though, like in second edition, I almost exclusively played Vix the entire second edition toward the tail end when they released the upgrades of the third wave or whatever is when I started exploring a little bit more into Hamlin and a few others. But I stick to the same crew. And in, in this edition, I pretty much did the same thing. No, that is fantastic. So, all right. Um, we like asking uh, icebreaker questions. Uh, for this episode, we're doing uh, who is your favorite master to play against and why? You know, whenever I first read this, I was like, I don't really think about that. Like, I just do the same thing. But actually, it, it kicked in. It's like, I actually liked playing against Nelly. Like, That's a awesome. lot. A lot. It was the most fun loss, zero one loss I ever had. And it's because her gimmick it kind of represents everything I love about Malifaux. It's playing against the expectations of what the game is supposed to be played as. And it's kind of a meta reaction of like, this is so annoying. And it's like, if you think (laughs) about what she does, it's like, that's exactly what she should do. And everybody who gets frustrated and hates it doesn't like grasp the the spirit of, of what she's doing. It's like, figure me out. You know, earlier Andre was saying he likes his opponent to present a challenge. And I'm like, Nelly is that puzzle that once you figure it out, it's probably the most satisfying win. I've only ever played it against it in this edition once, but when it was happening, he was like apologizing. And I was like, no, dude, you're playing exactly how it should be. It's presenting a new challenge that I'm not used to. And we should all strive to run into these walls because that's what makes you a better player. So it was the most fun zero one. And he was like, you can't pass this cursed object back to me. I'm like, you're sure correct about that. And it's awesome. Like, and I knew I had one chance to beat it and it messed up just kind of like a Carlo and I's game. It's like, you get one shot. And from there it's downhill. And, uh, I love that. I like being against that because salt makes you stronger. Jordan's going to be so excited it's, uh, to hear that. It's, <laughs> the, it's the whole steel sharpens steel thing, right? Exactly. And and you should be welcoming that because if everyone played what the game should be played like, we're all just going to beat on each other and you're just another skirmish game at that point. Nelly and crews like that bring what makes Malifaux kind of unique. You know, not a lot of other, I've played a lot of other games and not very many fit that same kind of uh, niche. So I agree. I think that's what makes Malifaux like one of the better miniature games out there is that it's not just about, hey, let me roll dice and kill you or, hey, let me just remove your models from the board. It's like, mm-hmm. I, lo- I love telling people that you can actually, and this I've actually happened to me is that you can have, you can get tabled, you can lose all your models and still win a game. Yep. And Nelly <laughs> is an embodiment of that in saying, saying that this is how the game is going to go. You've got to play around it. And it teaches you one of the most valuable lessons of Malifaux be, be versatile, like adjust whenever something new comes up. Because with this game and so many cards, so many masters, essentially, if you're like me and you have the memory of a goldfish, everything's new. So you've <laughs> got to learn to adapt to that. And uh, yeah, I'm only familiar with my stuff. So when I saw it, I was like, I know Nelly has this theme. Let's see how annoying it is. And when it was like even more annoying than I thought, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> like, this is crazy. Does anyone know about this? Uh, that is so fantastic. <laughs> well, and I, I would say this. I can't think of another game out there where they're going to be like, all right, so we got a leader who's a journalist yep <laughs> oh is she gonna like you know uh, it's like how's she gonna attack she's going to write damning headlines yeah. about you it's gonna be monologues and editorials she's gonna ask you hard questions yep oh yep. 
oh, by the way, she's got a typewriter with spider legs that sets you on fire. (laughs) (laughs) Like, really, when you think about this game versus other games, it's like how many other ones? Every other game, it's a variation of I'm a different type of beater. And here it's like, I don't beat you at all. You beat yourself. Like, your choices beat you or, like, the targets beat you. And they don't have to do a thing. And to me, I'm like, this is the ultimate lesson of Malifaux. Like, you don't have to play the traditional type of game to win. And I mean, uh, I've played games like with Andre, where I was telling a buddy of mine, like, watch, this game is going to be a beatdown, but it's going to come down to who scores better and making the right choices. And I think ultimately I've lost out uh, on that one because I made terrible choices. I think you were pointing out, it's like uh, your prospector was just out there. Why'd you charge this guy? I was like, because I was bored. (laughs) Like, that's really it is like, I didn't know what else to do with this AP. And so, you know, Nelly kind of teaches you, it's like, you've got to be flexible in your brain. You've got to, you've got to see models for more than what they can do on paper. And I think a lot of folks get lost on, on the details of what your models can do. when really it's like, just keep general stuff because it helps you be flexible in those situations. And Nelly was the ultimate of like everything you thought you were going to do, you're not going to do. So what are you going to do? You know? And I know there's a solution the the player who fails to improve is going to think oh that's op or or whatever it's the answer is going to be you know how do i break this apart with the tools that i do have and you know very few very good point exactly and yeah. very few matchups i've ever run into are are matchup dependent where you are just uphill on roller skates and carlos levy against my von Schill 2 was one of those examples where it's like i don't see too many solutions but in in the way i build my crews it's more like a how can I adjust to almost 90% of what you deal with? Because what you deal with in this game is really a series of combinations of normal abilities. So like uh, armor itself is a mundane thing or disguise is a mundane thing. Combining that stuff is a new problem. So most of the problems you deal with are those generalities in a combination. How do you deal with armor? How do you deal with shielding? How do you deal with not being able to interact or denying of, of a certain ability? And once you wrap your brain around stuff like Nelly, you start to see how the game really works. Yeah, now that's some great points. That uh, I did want to jump in with, uh, you mentioned the uh, the Von Schill uh, versus Levy game, <laughs> and that we're not talking about that one tonight, um, but that was on stream. So uh, the entire tournament was streamed by uh, Heroic Scale Gamers. Uh, super lucky to have them stream in our games. Shout out to them. They're so cool. Sure. Yeah, so so that game is, for dear listeners, you guys obviously know this, but yeah, dear listeners, uh, that game is available on stream, and uh, the link uh, to that overall stream is in the show notes. And I want to touch on that for a minute. I, I wanted to talk about it, but it was one of those rare instances where the loss didn't teach me as much because I knew it was going to be difficult. It was just one of those ones where the the lesson was, why did I pick Von Chill 2? And it yeah. kind of feeds into the lessons of what I'm going to bring about this game is I, if I would have picked the crew that I'm very used to and is a take all comers list, it would have done a lot better instead yeah. of one that has one severe weakness and is good against most other matchups. And then he happened to bring the severe weakness. As soon as I saw Levy pop up on the app, I was like, OK, cool. So this is about mitigating how much time. Don't undersell. Don't undersell that huge black joker on Hannah, though. <laughs> it was yeah. true, but I mean, <laughs> and it was a critical one because that in that game, I recognized I get one shot when he's here. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. So, 
Yeah, there we go. We got our Black Joker <laughs> theme music. Thank you. Yeah, Doug. there you go. Gorgeous. <laughs> so, alrighty. Um, but that is a nice segue into um, what round are you going to be talking about here, and and why, and what's the big lessons out of out of this particular round that you are going to be talking about. So when I picked it, I picked round three because um, it was my game against Elijah, Lady J, uh, Death Touched, and it's not so much about. Um, the specifics of what I did in the game, it was more about as a beginner, as a new player or playing into a challenging matchup where you're playing a player who has more experience, how do you mitigate that? Is it just impossible? And there are a few key times where um, certain choices could have mitigated a lot of things, but I think a lot of the general sense of what I would speak on is, is like the idea of you shouldn't be playing into those types of things thinking, oh, this is going to be difficult or whatever. You want to go in, you have your game plan. How do you make them fit your game plan? And the things that a lot of people get lost on on those details are things that differentiate a top player from another top player, as opposed to just focus on the foundation, focus on the basics. And the, the advice that I would think about this game speaks to that. It's like it the the items that you should be keeping in your head are not the nuanced interactions between abilities. It's how do you deal with a general problem? And that could have uh, improved in Elijah's performance more. Um, and I think that would be a valuable thing to share to other people who are struggling through the same things that I did when I first started. Yeah, that is great. And uh, yeah, good summary. And so uh, we'll be looking forward to also, it was super fun. Yeah. And it's super fun. Absolutely. <laughs> it was a super fun is... game. We were talking crap the whole time. Elijah is a fun guy to play against. Uh, like one of my favorites. I'm sure there was a bunch of models attacking buried models in that game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A little yeah. bit. Which, a little bit. It was a really interesting yeah. kind of tightrope thing. So, yeah, definitely looking forward to talking about that. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, okay. So, before you even got to the tournament, though, um, you're playing outcasts and mm -hmm. and that has been your thing for a while. Maybe why outcasts and, and why when you were looking at, at this particular round uh, and we'll go into the scheme pool and all that kind of stuff. But I, I got the sense that you're, you, you take Tara into almost anything. Yeah. And so she is kind of your, your uh, whatever, your, your main master, I guess, for this GG. So, yeah, can you talk to a little about that? Just your thoughts before the tournament even started. Yeah. So why I pick Outcasts because I like their models, yeah, like painting wise. But ultimately, it's because Outcasts, Outcast. Like it, it really. Uh, the thing about why I say it that way is I don't think about any of that stuff. I don't really care. I'm I come in with a plan, and I adjust it to whatever I'm facing. And that third game, I definitely chose Lady Justice before I even knew my opponent because of the lesson I learned from Von Schill into a bad matchup. And I'm like, man, you know, Tara is just, she may not have a good matchup. Um, in, I guess in fighting games terms, it would be like a 5-5 matchup is, is one of her worst ones, meaning uh, in, out of 10 games against an equally skilled opponent, you're probably going to be 5-5. You're going to win half of them. And so it's it comes down to the choices I'll make versus what I go against. And uh, Tara is just so much more flexible at doing that. And anytime I pick a sing single crew to solo use every time, it's all about mitigating the worst matchup. And Von Chill, it's like if you bring Levy or anything that ignores all of the stuff that he does, it's a terrible uphill climb. I can't think of too many ones that I've run into where Tara was just absolutely not able to do her game plan. And the only thing I could ever think of that I haven't faced yet is a Tara mat mirror matchup. 
because they have the same it's tools tough. you have. Exactly. And so if I went into Outcasts, which is one of the things I did in second round, I was like, well, maybe it'll be a terror matchup. So probably shouldn't do this. It's like, well, you know, a terror matchup would have been a mirror matchup would have been better than what I just walked into. So I'll just stick to it. To be fair, in a terror match, a mirror matchup. Hmm? Tara is going to always win in a Tara <laughs> for sure. Tara walks away. Yeah, and yeah. to uh, to piggyback on what Ryan said, Tara, I think is one of the few masters in Malifaux that always plays her game. Yep, uh, and that's why I pick her. And in last edition, it was um, Vix because I just it, it catered to my style as well as didn't have really terrible matchups. So if you're trying to learn the game or you're trying to master it, the same advice uh, to me is. It, it applies because it's minimizing the amount of things I have to know about. I don't need to wrestle with well, how do I change this or that? It's like I pick the same stuff every time I never change it. And I'm just obstinate that way. But it, the limitation forces creativity. So as long as you build a solid list that can deal with 90% of the, the issues you're likely to run into, then you can spend the 10% that you wouldn't run into normally being creative, like how do I deal with this unique problem? I'm not focusing on how my crew interacts with themselves. I'm focusing on the 10% unique problems. Everything else, I usually have a good idea of how I'm going to deal with it. That's cool. Yeah. So, all right. So um, this particular pool, um, mm -hmm. standard uh, and carve a path was a strategy. And then uh, scheme pool was breakthrough, assassinate, catch and release, spread them out in secret meetup. And so uh, you pretty much already decided, you know, whatever, we're going to take yeah. Tara into this um, and that and that she's just about any pool that we could give. But uh, was this kind of a standard Tara list for you? Could you talk through your list and some of the decisions made there yeah. with this particular pool in mind? I haven't changed this list in probably six to eight months. Okay. Like, and the only thing I did was add um, upgrades onto the prospectors. And I still debate whether I even want to do that anymore. It's just that whenever it's got a confirmation bias of like every time it's work, it's worked well, like, you know, so it's hard for me to take it away. But in this in my list, I have like Terra, Karina, Nothing Beast, Talos, Pride, Scion, uh, two prospectors with Wanted Criminal. And every game is almost always the same. The only thing that changes is deployment. And I generally keep two deployment types of either split or bubble. And it that's the only thing that really affects how I play my game is the pool will probably change my setup. But what the opponent's doing doesn't really change that for me. Like, I just stick to what I know works. And even if you know that I'm going to do it, it's sort of like what Andre was talking about with Travis earlier. It's like, you know, my game plan, try it, like, stop it. You know, it's coming. And uh, if you know your crew well enough to the point where, like, I've played this crew for three years, I know most of its interactions in most cases, you're not focusing so much on what are they bringing to the table. You're focusing on, like, all right, well, how do I make them fall into my trap? Or if they know it's a trap, how can I force them to just deal with it anyways? And so when I built this list, I, I built it with the same ideas of what we've talked about before. It's um, when you're talking about squishy, it's Tara squishy. Like she's super squishy. She can die. She's got a lot of hit uh, health, but anything can die in this game, especially in this edition. Things can die like for no reason at all. You just look at it. And so I know she's squishy and I use her as my scheme runner. She's like one of the only masters I've ever done it with or most of 
all of her five AP, four of it is running schemes, one summoning. So in order to let her do her game, I pick two, three beaters or two, three things that are like, you can't ignore me. So Nothing Beast and Talos with pride run up the middle because if you go up the middle, you are likely going to get a scrum in there. And so, and it's also the quickest point to your opponent. And owning the 50 yard line is a critical piece of Malifaux to me. So uh, when I put them up there, the real intent is that you're the distraction. Like everybody's going to focus on the big blue dude that I have and Talos and Pride's making you get frustrated. And you're going to lose sight with that bloodlust thinking killing nothing beast and talos is the answer and it's like the answer is tara in your backyard like <laughs> i don't know why you keep ignoring her and you can try to deal with her but usually with this setup between tara and the two um, prospectors it's like you're always going to have to answer that threat with uh, an additional force it's not like a six point for six point trying to match up on the prospector you're probably if you want to stop that that flank you're going to spend more than six points on it. And with Tara, uh, you better be successful the first time you try it because she's just like, bye, leap, leap. And then second activation, leap, 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 like, or whatever it is. And, and so you get one shot or two shots on her, but the whole time is like, you're, you're thinking about Talos and pride and, and nothing beast. And they're just, uh, they're a distraction. They are. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah. No, that's great. I've seen pride with Vix, mm -hmm. um, mainly because of the consumed by pride on the front, I think, uh, yeah. where just messing with your opponent's ability to cheat. Uh, is that the same kind of role that he's playing in yeah. this crew or is there more? Okay. Yeah, because, uh, and uh, Christian and them make fun of me all the time. It's like, I just put pride in. Like, I don't think about it because the not denial is so strong um, he never does anything else. He's a walking bubble, like, and I might scheme with him, but uh, because you need that focal point of look at me, I'm nothing beast. Look at me at Talos. Pride adds that extra layer of how am I going to deal with this? Like, you know, you get one shot. And then after that, like uh, if you cheated, you're, you're in my pocket. Could you describe that a little bit? A, a lot oh. of people have probably not seen pride even. So yeah. Could you talk through the details on that? Yeah, when I first read Pride, I was like, he's an auto included in almost all my lists. But basically, his main thing is, if you cheat fate within a six inch bubble of him, uh, you get a, a sin token. And as long as you have a sin token, if you cheat fate in that same bubble, I can just discard the sin token. And you have to discard that card, and you can't cheat. So almost every game, I tell them, I'm like, you have a sin token, you want to cheat, it's going to it could be wasted. And that's also a mind game too. Cause there've been times where somebody cheats testing me if I'm going to get rid of this, the sin token. I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. Thanks for the extra sin token though. Now you have two attacks in a row that you guaranteed are not going to cheat. And half of this game is mitigating chance. So um, whenever you're thinking, Oh, they could hit me. If you have like a, a high card in your hand, the only way that they're going to be able to get through that with sin tokens on them is if they flip luckily. But even if they flip luckily, if you have the perfect control hand, you mitigate that and you win it. And then you just save that sin token for later. So um, the other ability that he uses, I use with him is solo. I only flip into it. I never cheat it. Like, um, And it's just really nice uh, because usually he's activating sort of last. But I'll, I'll activate it if I really need to control cheating. 
because it also allows it to, in that six inch bubble, they always have to cheat first. Friendly models, right? It's friendly Enemy models. models. Enemy models always have to cheat first. Oh, enemy models have to cheat first. I see what you're saying. Got it. And so that one I don't rely on so much. It's really just a six inch, you know, annoying bubble. And uh, most of the time, even if he doesn't do anything else except play that denial game into the part of my crew that cares about melee, it just makes those two annoying models more survivable. And so it speaks to the model on paper by itself is not what you should care about. It's the interactions with the other parts of the crew. And with pride in there, it's like, do you deal with pride first? Do you deal with nothing beast first or do you deal with Talos first? And the whole time's like, Tara's like breakthrough, <laughs> you know? So that's the point of the crew is, is just, it's all a distraction for Tara. <laughs> that's great. And I'm looking at that solo bit right there. That's like, yeah. okay, you cheat second. Well, then you can see what they cheated and it's like, oh, oh yeah, you know what? Get get rid of that. And now I'm going to cheat. Yeah. And I cheat a garbage card. Or like if they already have a sin token, they're forced to make the choice. Do I cheat in a high thing and risk the sin token being off? Or do I cheat a mid to try to bait the uh, sin token off? And they'll say cheat in a six or an eight. Uh, and then uh, at that point, I'm, I can make that choice. But yeah, like with solo, um, because it takes an eight, I usually have those cards reserved for other things. So I'll try to luckily flip into it. But most of the time, it's it's something I do at the end just in case. Uh, but really with pride, it's the combination of the fact that he's a seven cost henchman. So that's survivability, manipulative survivability in aura where that takes place regardless of my resources, regardless of my uh, positioning, as long as they're close by. So, you know, a lot of the themes of what I do or think of when I build a list is what can I bring in here that doesn't take any input from the opponent and doesn't take any resource from me. And he is basically just chock loaded with it. And he does have an attack that can do some card draw, but it, it is an opponent decision based thing. So I usually don't like to rely on it. And a zero inch melee is basically no melee to me. So a lot of the choice is just he's a walking aura that um, helps Talos and uh, Nothing Be survive as well as gives a, a plethora of targets that they're all serious to the opponent. So anytime you have to present those choices, it's, it's grueling to them. I have a question. I mean, I could just yeah. read the card, but you use him a lot. So you probably know the answer to this. Mm -hmm. Is it anytime they cheat, including damage flips? Uh, Yeah. When an enemy model within six would cheat fate, this model may discard a sin card uh, from the enemy model to have the cheated card be discarded instead of cheated. And the enemy model can't cheat again. That's actually really gross. <laughs> I, that's why when I read it, I was like, why is not every outcast? He's versatile. Everybody should be using this. Although I've seen in shooting crews, he's got less of a use. I, I, I know that you mentioned earlier that Victoria's use them a lot. I think they're too fast for him to stay in that aura. Um, but you could try it out unless you're playing vix too yeah well i think they're faster but like uh you can still work within that because the whole point of that aura is just if they know it's there they're working really hard to like avoid it so then you're already kind of making them play into their into your game pride is kind of a critical piece because whenever i first swapped him in it was just like magic it, it worked really well for how i like to play um nothing based in talos to me are super like auto includes with the keyword. 
uh, Talos, especially now after the errata, being able to bury you without a choice. Like, it's just an attack. If I hit, you're buried. So, yeah, and the prospectors are more for uh, their movement and uh, manipulative than anything else. Like, um, they have a lot of shenanigans you can pull with them. Um, but it all surrounds keeping Karina off of your radar. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I wanted to ask about the wanted criminal upgrades. And you kind of mentioned, yeah, sometimes you're like, should I do them? And, and it works really well. Um, yeah. Particularly with the soul stones, does four feel about right? Yeah, you know, um, the wanted criminal upgrade was for survivability and movement. And uh, so, like, giving them disguise changes everything. Getting a free yeah. two-inch push when you're near casino terrain. Like, it's <laughs> it's going to happen. Yeah. And the first time I saw it in a Vix crew on Ronin, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is going in my list. Because it's better on Ronin, in my opinion, but um, it's protecting your resource builder of free stones, you know, every time. They don't really need to not be stunned. Uh, I hardly ever use any of their abilities. They're really just walk schemers. And in this game especially, it let me push from... Uh, four inches away because you get the two inch from the upgrade. You get a two inch if it, there's a marker near in their line of sight. And because of that, I got to double attack with the, the pickaxe that doesn't let you do defensive triggers, which is completely underestimated. Like you oh, bring that to a Zoraida. So. It's great. Um, the marker things that they can do. I only do that if I have nothing else to do. Like uh, I, I don't really use that. To, it's too random. Remember that it doesn't have to be scheme. It can be corpse or scrap and it's, it's free card draw, baby. Yeah, I'm too busy. <laughs> I'm too busy cowarding away with them. Do you care? <laughs> like they are there to uh, prevent charges in charge yeah. lanes. Of They're course. there to get to the flanks in the back and possibly hit other scheme runners. But most of the time, I'm there for like, all right, this is my backup if Terra can't do this scheme run. Food for thought, by the way. Yeah, I use that upgrade on that crew a lot. If I'm playing Terra one and it's stapled to Terra. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people will try to lock her down to force you to leap first, mm -hmm. right? Or force you to make an attack and chance the berry. But with Terra with Wanted Criminal is four inches of free movement every turn. Yeah. Which is like, not to be it, underestimated. The thing is, though, like, I don't feel I have a want of movement for her. Like, she's got so much freedom and the, you lose the disguised putting it on her. Of course. So. It's just food for thought. And, and I used to also... And because I came from second edition, I almost exclusively put upgrades on my expensive dudes at first. And I thought putting it on a minion was a waste until it was used against me. And I was like, oh, no, disguised is everything. Like, it's yeah, so huge. good. Manipulative with disguised. Now, granted, Travis walks up to it, focused and hits it. And so there goes that. But uh, oh, it's cute. Bam. Yeah. yeah, that is that weakness is like, all right, negative focus. Cool. Um, but because you can't end it with a charge it kind of makes you waste ap and really that's kind of the theme of, of the crew is like waste ap on all these distractions while tara does this you know so yeah that is fantastic so no but thank you very much for talking us through the list so mm -hmm. so now everybody can beat me now we took some time on there but it's got some really unique stuff that we just don't see a lot and so i really really do appreciate that you know, the other part about it, too, is what, regardless of what terror list you do build, their focus is isolate and obliterate, right? Like, the thing that appealed to me most about her theme is that once something's in space, a lot, if not all of them, can hit it. How often do you run into that situation where regardless of where your crew is at and what they're doing, if a target's there, everyone can hit it. 
like that force multiplier is something that every crew ultimately seeks to do. They all want to kill something altogether and pick one target. That's the ultimate success of how they work is like, all right, doesn't matter who it is. If you're buried, likely you're going to die because you're taking hits from everyone as opposed to if there's a wall between you and me, I'm not hitting you or something like that. There, it's like every little thing can hit you. Very few things can. That's excellent. I want to draw attention to the pun that he unknowingly made when he said isolate and obliterate. obliterate. Yep. <laughs> hey, what do you know? This guy's clever. But yeah, that's essentially <laughs> my game plan the whole time is like, uh, how do I isolate their biggest beater, knock it out as fast as possible, and then all of a sudden they're lost in this, I got to make up for that loss, and I got to beat the beaters. And the whole time, it's like, that's not the focus. They're here to just make you go ooga booga. Like Tara's doing sabotage right now. <laughs> uh, that's great. Talking about uh, sabotage, um, not in, in this pool, but yeah, mm-hmm. Breakthrough, Assassinate, Catch and Release, Spread the Mountain, Secret Meetup. What, what did you end up taking? I ended up taking Breakthrough and Secret Meetup. And the lesson I took away from this is I probably should have picked uh, Spread the Mount just to have a little bit more control and less uh, opponent input. Because I lucked out in this game where I kind of sort of metaed Elijah into a fight with the, um, to earn that point for a secret meetup. If he, because I chose his lone uh, dude on a horse, um, thinking he is their beater. Like from what I can tell, I don't really know that stuff. And I was like, all right, that looks like a beater. That looks like somebody wants to get in a fight. And even though he's shooty, if he sees these big targets, it's going to naturally draw him in. So if I pick a piece in the middle and I pick nothing beast or whatever is going to draw that attention, it's going to happen. Well, it almost didn't because he flanked with him and uh, I left it sort of open on purpose and he didn't have to come after me. But the bloodlust took over and I sort of was like, man, I, I, I made a mention or something of like, oh, nothing beast is just out there now. And it's true. He could have died. But um, if you mitigate it by like, I think I put him in concealing terrain. He's in, in uh, incorporeal. It's like, maybe it, this is kind of risky, but I can probably draw him out if I just barely get to the edge of this terrain. And it, it lucked out for me, but he didn't have to. And that's sort of part of the lesson of if you just stick to your your guns of what your game plan is and don't fall for the bloodlust trap. He could have done breakthrough with that lone gunman or whatever it's called. So uh, that's part of one of the reasons why, like, I feel like I should have gotten two schemey ones because the prospectors could have run one of them and Tara could have run the other one. Um, I didn't pick it for the same reasons, you know, Carla, you mentioned earlier about too many scheme marker ones. But in this case, it would have actually worked for me. I wouldn't have had to focus on trying to draw somebody into a piece of terrain. Um, and and that's kind of uh, my philosophy of when you pick schemes, pick ones that the opponent has no say in it. If Terra's in your back line and there's no models anywhere near her, how are they going to deny breakthrough? They they have no say in it. They you don't have to depend on like an assassinate. You have to depend on them dying. Like I don't I don't like that. And so I hardly ever pick it because I usually will mess that up in some form or fashion. So in the other version of that though, where something has to die within so many inches of your master, that I'll pick because it's less dependent on picking a single opponent's model. Things can occur naturally, and then you score. So. In this pool, I saw, like, whenever I see Breakthrough, I just pick it instantly with Terra. I don't even think about it. Secret Meetup is probably the second best on paper for the way I play. 
the other ones I don't even think about so much. No, to- totally fair. Totally fair. That uh, You've touched on it a little bit. You're like, I don't know. It's like the guy on the horse with the yeah. gun, you know? Oh, so mm-hmm. I think that this is a good, you, you and I had a chance <laughs> to talk uh, a, l- a little before this, but about uh, just you don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to what your opponent's bringing. <laughs> and so, no. so I, I will say, so op- opponents list, Elijah brought uh, Lady Justice, Death Touch, like you talked about, um, Scales uh, as the totem, Judge the Lone Marshal, which is the guy on a horse with a gun. Oh. Um, yeah, there you go. No worries. Yeah, yeah. Death Marshal Recruiter, Death Marshal, uh, another Death Marshal, and uh, Exorcist. Um, and so you're looking at this list after, you know, crew declaration time, and you're maybe... Maybe, you know, we have had other guests that are like, okay, well, here's what they're going to be doing. Here's what they're going to be doing. Here's what they, yeah. Tell me about your approach when you see this list. Cause I love it. I never read the card before. I never read it after until right. No, I didn't even fully read the card uh, when we started on. Cause I don't, I don't really care. Like <laughs> that's the thing is like my, my game style is sort of apathetic and obstinate where it's like, everyone's trying to get the edge on each other. And I just found from playing so many miniatures games that like that edge distinguishes you against other top players. But I consider myself a potato. Like I don't know any of this stuff. Like I don't care. I'm here to play this type of game. And if you're new to me, like your crew or whatever, I'll learn the lesson after that. And a few times I've been like, oh, I made a huge mistake because I didn't know what that model did i feel that it happens less often than players gave credit for they think that it's oh i didn't know how to answer this thing it's like you kind of did you just didn't bring the right tools for it and it's it's about and even if you didn't bring the right tools using the ones that you do have in combination to answer that and whenever i was teaching uh, christian on playing i just i always go to the same tenets of like minimum damage three is my game like i just care about that stuff because a lot of things will die to minimum damage three and if it doesn't you do multiple minimum damage threes and like you just keep hitting it and you know there that's an answer to a lot of things that's the kind of game plan that i can get behind yeah very much like yeah yeah like whenever i read or like christian's reading cards to me i'll be like oh minimum damage three okay he's worth it yeah like yeah that's good but uh it's intentionally obtuse because i started in second edition when they had a third of the cards i guess i don't know and it was a lot easier to digest every card and then in third edition they redid everything so you have to unlearn all that you knew uh, because like my Vicks were completely different. A lot of things sort of had similar same gameplays, but you get mixed up with all the older stuff. So I had to unlearn that. And then they're like, oh, here's Explorers. Oh, you want a second version of your master? I'm like, I can't read all that, man. I got other stuff. <laughs> so I pretty much decided a long time ago, I'm just going to pick one crew and I'll learn my lessons along the way. And I needed to make a crew that can handle most situations. And I feel Terror can. So yeah agreed i'm just thinking about this now your potato i'm not going to do the research thing and i'm thinking back to second edition oh yeah that's different that was i was a different person when you literally wrote a fucking book (laughs) to prepare for the crew i was running so it's a funny thing about that the difference between second and third is when i talk about third and nelly I had a fun time on that denial because it didn't seem that there was no answer to it. In your Sandeep list in second ed, 
I, I I never did stuff like that. What I did for yours, but I felt the only way I could beat that is to research the crap out of it. You know what happened in that game? I still lost. So what did research do for me? Nothing. And it's not about like these folks who do read everything. Like I assume everyone knows more about the game than me because I don't read any of it. But I know that reading everything it's going to fall out of my ears when it's time to flip cards. I don't remember any of that stuff. What I do remember is like, hey, which one has armor? Which one has, uh, what's higher, willpower or defense? Like I ask very general questions. Like how many, does it have disguise? Does it have hard to wound? Okay, cool. Everything else I'll figure out along the way. And uh, it, it's more about experiencing it. And when you learn those hard lessons, they stick a lot harder when you didn't know and it surprises you. And, and, particularly when playing Terra, you have an answer to most things that mm-hmm. other players do not. And that is, uh, oh man, this model sure is in my way. It sure would be a shame if it was yeah. off the table. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because um, in in speaking to that, when people talk about details of matchups, I think I saw a question of, you know, were you concerned that she can target stuff and buried? I'm like, no, because I can do it better. Like, you know, like it's like not bringing an armor model in because somebody has armor pierce. It's like you already you already lost at that point to me because you're playing to, you're changing how you have to play because the composition of your list changed. So therefore, the way you play, it's going to change. And to me, I like to eliminate as much learning as possible. I don't want to learn. I'm not here to <laughs> learn. I'm not here to learn how to do that kind of stuff. I'm here to learn how to apply my crew in this situation and that's the difficulty i'm having trying to switch crews is because you you switch to something else and it's a whole different thing you gotta learn and if i'm having difficulty with doing that imagine the new player who never plays the same crew like they're learning malifaux all over again and so i just try to minimize that and the only thing i'm learning is what your crew does and how you're using it because two people can play the same crew and they play it differently so I'm just learning how to be versatile with this list. Not, I'm, I'm not here to learn what new cards do what. That's such an interesting perspective to me because for me, I'm on the complete opposite side. I know. <laughs> Everyone else is. Like know the enemy, be able to figure out what all their stuff does. And no. to me, like I have the brain power lying around because my, my, you know, my, my job's like a good job, but like I don't have to think too, too hard about it. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, I'm just memorizing cards all day where I'm like, and I get to the point where I'm like, actually that's on a Ram, not a Tome. You're going to need to choose, choose a different card for that. And they're like, I'm sorry, what? And so like when you get to that point, like it feels great for sure. But I think to your point for your uh, fellow potatoes, it really just comes down to like, that's so much extra brain power to put into the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause like a lot of the, a lot of people, especially people that are tuning into this podcast to try to get better, you know, there, there is an essence of sometimes trying too hard can be detrimental. And so mm-hmm. getting to a point in the game where you're like, oh, I need to think about everything my opponent can do and everything that I have to do as well. And sometimes that just trips you up. And so if you're like, I know what my crew does, I'm going to find out what your yeah. crew does, but I'm going to play my game. I think that's actually a great takeaway. I like that a lot. What's funny about your example is that there's like, I studied everything of what you could do. It's like, you know, you could be facing another potato. Like they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. You know, that's great. Yeah. And in defense <laughs> of potatoes. To speak, to speak to both Ryan and Andre, Especially like Ryan, because I mean, I am also an outcast player and it's two tournaments in a row for me that I've had to play against Ryan. <laughs> uh, and uh, just seeing 
the difference in what he does and what I do, uh, because you can you can take the same list as somebody, but whoever's piloting the list is what makes the list work. You know what I'm saying? Because the list came from somebody else's brain, you know, so it, you could run the same list and do mm-hmm. something completely different than that other person. Ah, so, yeah. And I'm in that with, with Ryan, like I would have never put two wanted criminals on prospectors, but I might now, yeah. you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And like Travis tells me, he's like, that's a waste of points. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it could be. But this also goes into the point of why I remain like intentionally obtuse. I don't, I purposely, or I actively avoid listening to podcasts, like nothing against <laughs> podcasters, but someone else's influence might change the way you play when you try to conform to what you believe is a winning formula. A winning formula is the pilot and the crew. So you can give Travis a mediocre list. He'll still beat me. So I basically try to avoid the conventional thinking. I actively avoid forums or anyone else's ideas because it's going to change the way I think about my game. And like, if I run into it, I see the value of it. Sure. But ultimately it's about what you do with it. So if it works for you, you're going to do it better than taking a net list and trying to drive it home. You need to cater to how you do your decision-making So in my decision-making, it's very broad. So I keep it very broad in terms of what I can or can't do. But when you start to get concise into this is an exact combination of things, if things were just right and if the winter solstice appears and like the moon, (laughs) I'm like, you know, there's no point in that because you can keep that in the back of your mind as a tool, but it is not the thing that gets you consistent wins. Consistent wins is consistent choices. And I think everybody gets lost in the minutia of what you can do versus what's probably going to happen. And I always do the 80-20 rule of 80% of the time, like these 20% of things, why are you focusing on everything else? Just address them when they come up. Like, just focus on your basics, bro. Dribble. <laughs> 50% of the time, it works, it works every, every time. time. Yeah. Yep. I just think people worry about stuff you know, too much. So love the perspective. And I just need to throw in that it's, yeah, the other potatoes. First of all, uh, call yourself a potato, and I appreciate your your modesty. But but you did come in like number four out of nineteen. So yeah, you, you missed by like this much. Uh, yeah, we're <laughs> a very competitive meta, and so I just I just don't want. I very much appreciate the modesty, but the reality is you kicked butt, and uh, <laughs> and so so good on you, and. And you did it in a way that I think is super refreshing. And maybe especially for some new players, we've got, we mm-hmm. have a lot of listeners, you know, who are a little frustrated right now, maybe with Malifaux, because there's a lot of masters and there's Too a much. lot of models and, and there's a lot to learn. And if, and if you approach that problem, you know, 714 cards, I think maybe it's mm-hmm. something like it's 700 and change. And you're like, I have to know all of those to perform. Well, yeah. Okay. Andre, good on you. We're super glad that you know all of them. And 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 that is that competitive edge that matters when you're going up against other people. Top table. Like, yeah. When you're very competitive meta, you can make top third by knowing your crew and not even reading your opponent's cards. Yeah. You know, and I'm just like, that's glorious. It's the illustrious Forrest Gump technique. You just wander through history, you know? Like... <laughs> And I think, going back to it, I think Terra is one of the most perfect 
crews to mm-hmm. do that with because Terra is always doing Terra things mm-hmm. and it's your opponent's job to stop her from doing Terra things. Yep. And the caveat of what my lessons are is that um, you do have to start with the foundation of a good crew. Like uh, it doesn't have to be the OP crew. It has to be a crew that can answer a lot of questions and doesn't get stumped severely with one or two elements. That is your, like that's a matchup pick. And so my Von Schill, I started doing because I was, you know, three years of playing Terra back to back. It gets a little old sometimes. So I switched it over as like, maybe this is my answer to Cursed Objects because that's something I kind of struggle with is just straight killy. And then um, it, I found out in this tournament, it's situational. And I could definitely still do Cursed Objects with her. But uh, it's one of her few things where I'm like, maybe I'm not so great at this I've beaten I've beaten people in that. It's just it's a tougher thing. It's not as tough as Von Chill 2 and Levy. So that's really what you want to do. You want to get it down to uh, 50-50 against an even player at worst. Like uh, that's that's kind of my idea of that's a good crew. It's versatile. It's answered 90% of my problems. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah. So um great discussion kind of all over the map. We have yeah, hit a, bit, a lot so. of the points about kind of that before the game thought process and your thought process and what you were looking to do and kind of what you were expecting or, or not even worried about your opponent doing. Did you have anything else kind of that you wanted to, to bring up before the start of the game, Ryan? Or for Doug or either of our guests, do you want to – got any questions? I actually did want to bring up one thing. The The reason why I thought of this uh, game was deployment, and it, it, repl- it kind of replayed – the way I used to think when I first started this game versus how I do now. And when I mentioned earlier about my deployment, it was a crucial factor because I'm a big believer of you win or lose games based off your deployment. Like you mentioned about walking AP, all that stuff. Where What lane you go into, because I kind of consider Malifaux tables in three lanes, middle, flank, flank. So what lane you're in is probably what you're going to end up at. Like unless you are straddling between those three zones some or between two zones, you're probably going to end up if you start on the left, you're going to get end on the left or you're going to die on the left. So in this game, um, I recognize that he can either bubble up and hit hard or I can make him spread out, isolate and obliterate. So because I had to deploy first, uh, I always separate mine as Terra to prospectors, everybody else. I don't care. So he put Terra out. I'm like, all right, Terra's in the middle because she's the most flexible in moving to different lanes. And prospectors are touching the edge of that table on opposite ends. So it doesn't give them any information um, other than, oh, he's spread out. If they think, oh, he's going to spread out, well, then you fell into it because you spread out to answer it. Um, if you bubble up, both all elements are able to either continue on in their lane unopposed or recover and move over to the other side. And I used to do this a lot where I would split and then at the start of the game, I'd move over to a flank. So like the middle moves to the right, the right moves up and the left moves to the center. Suddenly I have a whole crew focused in one area and you're spread across the map and you didn't have mobility on your side. So like, don't make that mistake of responding to an enemy if it's not your strength, just force them into the alley. If they split up, it's like, cool, I'm not splitting up. I don't care what you do. But not all crews are able to tackle it that way. It's just that's my play style of like uh, throwing it off in deployment. And if you choose to participate, then it's not so great for you. If you don't, then I can recover to to anticipate your bubble. 
or avoid it entirely. I've played whole games where I'm like, nothing beats. You have a six move. You know what you're going to do with that six move? You're going to run away. You're going to run that way and you're going to hit some three point model or something because it's a guaranteed kill versus I might die killing something. And so that denial, it's more than just VP. You want to deny them their ability to, to, if it's like a lone swordsman who wants to get in melee, you can deny that ability with a fast move and getting out and hitting something else. Me personally, I like to kill Fuhatsu and lone swordsman immediately. Uh, every time I've played against Travis's, I still don't know what Fuhatsu does because I've killed it turn one or two. Must be nice. It makes you cry. Yeah. With pain. Humble break. <laughs> Andre's Humble like, oh. But I don't win. <laughs> That's the other half. Yeah. It's like, okay, cool, Toto. <laughs> but I mean, the deployment, though, is a crucial part that I think gets overlooked by newer players. They just kind of they think of all the possibilities and the rainbows and the sunshines of all these combos we can do. And it's like, really, that first AP is, is the most important. And do you want to start it caddy corner or do you want to start it directly across the intended target? So how you set up is probably half the battle that is really cool love that love that thought process so during the game uh, interesting lines of play after deployment once mm -hmm. you start flipping cards if you could talk us through uh the cool points of the game the cool points is because of deployment i got to dictate where the match ended up so he answered my splitting of the prospectors and terra uh by splitting himself but it, it answers the deployment but it doesn't answer what you're going to do after that because he had Lady Justice with, I think, one model uh, supporting her and all the way to the, my right side. And then in the center, she, he had like two or three. And then on the left side, he had an overwhelming force of the remaining models with lone gunman thingy and I think a death marshal and the exorcist or something. So that's when I decided, all right, I'm you put the majority of your models with a big intimidating looking guy over here i'm gonna go to the other side to lady j because i'm pretty sure when anything's by itself it's gonna die so all i gotta do is bury her once or distract her or keep her busy with sacrificial models and that's essentially what beginner players once they start hitting that middle third of moderate players they're going to realize like that's your game plan and if they're falling into it you need to hammer that momentum home so what I did was I isolated the support model to uh, Lady Justice with a summon that came out and charged it instantly and I think killed it fairly quickly. So then that left a summon that I didn't care about right in front of Lady J, begging her to answer it. She did. It got stuck in, um, but then it, she ended up getting out and I ended up throwing up stuff to her. Meanwhile, Tara was holding the whole left flank by herself because I essentially was like, all right cool, I could go up the middle, but when you go through the middle of anything, that leaves two open flanks. So, like, you can get hit from three places, the center, left, right. So I went straight to the left. The other prospector that was already there was going to the middle um, so that she was by herself holding off three models and denied the can kicking. Like, he would kick it over. She'd be like, I have five AP. Kick, leap, kick, leap. Like, get out of here. And so she single-handedly was holding an overwhelming force that was not commensurate to the point value. What is it, 15 for a master or something like that? Well, I'm certain it was well over 15. It was three or four models. And anytime you do that, you're succeeding because you're making an immeasurable response. And so you're being more efficient. I mean, it's not black and white point for point, but... It, it gets there. It's it's a general way of thinking of things. And so whenever I see that on a flank 
where Tara is holding up two to three models. She got hit a couple times, but ultimately they had to split focus between do I kick a can or do I try to hit Tara or do I try to catch her? And ultimately, if you're answering those questions, you're already losing because Tara is designed to do that. So that was the interesting part of it is like I got to isolate in more ways than one. And the burying was just icing on the cake. If anybody was buried, then all of a sudden everybody switches targets to kill whatever's buried. But I didn't need it. Like if nobody got buried this game, it wouldn't have mattered because the deployment dictated the isolation. Whether you're in space or whether you're on the ground, if you're by yourself you're against an overwhelming force, or in my case, every member of the crew except Terra, then you're kind of going to lose out on that. And I don't care which master it is. Well, and I think you brought up a really good point there with makes uh, great sense. how you used your summons there. That summoned, went and killed off, you know, a support model. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're like, oh, yeah, kills it off. Sweet gravy. Yeah. But it sounded like you're like, hey, I'm going to summon things. And the role they were uh, playing was not the, hey, I'm going to summon things to go accomplish things and score. Mm-hmm. I'm going to summon something as bait yep. and just go, hey, here you go. Look, this is so juicy. You can't pass it up. Yep. It's a big lesson to know when to when to pass upon that thing. Go. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's big and juicy, but that doesn't get me points. It doesn't get you points. Doesn't do anything for you. If it was cursed objects, maybe. The thing about that too is that it's a it's a pretty looking speed bump. And the question earlier asked about how do I protect my squishies? Come up with those sacrificial lambs. Um, because in my mind, I think of nothing beast and Talos as squishy. Like in my head, I just think because of the volume of attacks, the attention they're going to have, it's going to end up dying eventually. They are speed bumps. What summons are, are speed bumps for those speed bumps. Because generally I'll walk up maybe once if I'm feeling spicy twice. But the summon is usually preceding that by going straight up the middle. Go If you're not a shooter, then it's, it's not going to matter so much because I, I go up there in the middle and you'd be like, all right, cool, I can kill that. It's like, all right, that costed me an eight or that costed me an 11 and you're going to spend multiple AP on it. It's usually not going to get one shot, which is the reason why I try to summon uh, Void Hunters over Wretches. Even though Wretches will help you get AP advantage, Hunters just are sticky. They stick around. So if you need a speed bump, put that thing out there and just like try to beckon Chargers in. And in Masaki Crew, as, as part of what that, question was relevant to it's a little tougher but i mean that's what the summons are for you know just put put an inconsequential model that you don't care about or a totem that you don't really use just block a charge lane and so all of a sudden it goes from nothing beast talos and and pride are in the middle exposed to in between them and you is one solitary model that you're gonna have to deal with if you want to get to the main meat and potatoes so it's just what I generally use it for. Sometimes I'll use it to as activation control, but usually it's a distraction. That's great. Great question. You were talking about uh, leaping around with, with Tara. That's the time slip ability, right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't actually have a leap. And you 100% know this. I'm not really... It's more just Oh, for, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Familiar with I just Tara. say leap because it's effectively yeah. a leap. Yeah. It, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's a stat six, no suit required. Yeah. The only difference between that and leap is that you can do it more than once. Yep. Oh, makes sense. Yeah, leap is always a bonus. That totally makes sense. Okay. And also, the reason why I just say leap is it goes back to I in I purposely generalize things. Because mm-hmm. you can boil things down to it's a leap. 
Like essentially there's going to be nuances. If you're caring about the nuances, they matter like a leap that doesn't have a mask built in, but ultimately the effect of the ability assuming that you are trying to succeed on it is no different than a leap. Um, the nuances that I can do it more, I guess, or the stat that it takes. So uh, that's what I mean by, I think a lot in generalities, I like how I couldn't think of the lone marshal's name. I just right, think yeah. big, big dude has a gun. Like he's a 50 mil base. He looks like he's important. That's how I see the other side. He's got a gun. He's got a horse. Yeah. Yeah. I see that all the time on the other side. I'm like, Oh, that's big. Okay. I'm probably going to have to kill that. <laughs> Back to some of the Nelly things. You get like, you know, she's got some relative beaters on like 30 millimeter bases. And you're like, what the heck is this? How how can this be? You know? Oh, in those cases, I'm like, well, masters seem important. I guess I'll target that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> or minions. If, if you have a bunch of 30 mils, I'm like, uh, totems probably are important. Or if you have multiples, those are probably important. So yeah, I, I just think that way. I don't really know what they do i don't even know everything that outcast does my own faction models i own yeah. i don't know what it does yeah but <laughs> it's because yeah focusing on tara it's great yeah. so already uh mvp model for this game who who is your mvp my mvp tara for sure because she held up a whole side almost every game i she's my scheme runner so it's usually the same deal of leap marker leap and then the second activation will be like either marker summon leap marker like it's a flow chart in my head yeah. So the fact that she successfully did that at the same time while denying a strat and getting the scheme successfully, it was just like, it, it was running on like pure efficiency. So I rarely ever get to do that. Usually folks are targeting in on her or I have to be a little bit more slick as to where I'm moving. So I can't achieve all of those things. This was one of those where it's like everything worked out perfectly. She held up a ton and scored. Now that is excellent. So all righty. Kind of shift into after the game. Mm -hmm. If you're given advice to a person that has never faced Tara, and particularly never faced you on Tara, what kind of advice would you give for him? And you've given a lot of, I mean, amazingly good advice for just like a bottom third player in general. But for anyone who's never faced Tara, uh, what kind of tips would you give? The best advice I can give if you face me with Tara would probably be just concede I will never expect that. Like I would not see... <laughs> That coming. I'd high five you like this dude outplayed me. Just saying. I would I would not see that coming. But no, really what happened, what it is, it's like I kind of gave away the ghost by saying it, but uh nothing beats Pride and Talos are distraction. Like very few times are they part of my plan to to score. They are part of my plan to deny, where you're gonna be focusing and spending AP on trying to stop them. The successful players will either get through them really, really quick. So like armor pierce on Talos or a multiple number of attacks on nothing beast over and over again, ruthless, that kind of thing. But uh, I mean, if you're planning on killing them, plan on putting a whole force on them so that you can wipe a model out at once. Don't leave it alone. Karina can heal. And um, if you don't kill a nothing beast immediately, I'm just like, all right, cool. Out of all my models that have this ability, I'm going to bury them. Like six inch yeah. berry. Because one time um, I was playing someone and they made three of their models fast right at the start of the their first activation or something. I was like, ah, oh, buddy, like, no, don't do this. And so I buried Nothing Beast, uh, unburied against one, because with three fast, there's no way you can stop it unless you get rid of all of it at once in one yeah. in two activations. So then as soon as I came out, killed a model, 
everybody was like turning around. Let me hit him now. Tara jumped up. Barry, like, don't go after those things unless you can kill it for sure. or You have an answer for it. If you do, it's like my plan crumbles pretty fast if you get rid of the the center. Um, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. Usually by that time, you spent two turns trying. And even if you did a really good job of it, if you spent two turns trying, Tara was just spending two turns scoring. So great. answer it. Answer Tara more than anything. That's great. And you would think that Lady J, too, is the answer. I don't think it is. I mean, she has one of the same abilities as normal folk in Terra's crew. So the the folks are trying to uh, big brain it where it's like, oh, you, Barry, I do. I can work with that, too. It's like, well, I mean, I was kind of built better to do it. So sure, you really what you want to do is not play that game. Like, why would you play their strength with your semi strength? Because Lady J's crew isn't it's not like if you bury somebody, can everybody hit them? No, Terra can, though. So you're not having a berry fight. You're pretending to have a berry fight. So don't answer it with that. Like, that's the way I think of it. Don't don't play their game. Just beat me. Like, uh, like in terms of Lady J beats the hell out of you. Do that. Like, don't get fancy. Like, just punch. <laughs> Smacks you with a sharp metal stick. Yeah, just punch, man. Great swords for the win. Yeah, that is awesome. Uh, I wanted to go ahead and simply because we do have Carlo here as an outcast player. If someone was facing you, a uh, different play style, and and I'm not trying to make it into a Tara podcast, and I'm not trying to make it into you a, should. a Carlo <laughs> she's the best. podcast. She's the, she's the best master in the game. Just kidding. <laughs> oh, she's amazing. No, she's she, one of my yeah, favorites. It, do you have Do you have any tips that you'd pile on for for new people play facing Tara for the first time? Well, she's got a big bag of tricks. I could I could talk forever on just Tara's bag of tricks, but I'm not yep. going to do that. My thing is is you got to try really hard to control Tara, which which is tough to do because Tara's built to always go last. If you yep, have right. even number of models, you still go last as Tara because Summon, she has reactivate. She has two activations and she has summons, right? So her whole shtick is activation control, right? So if I was facing Terra, I would try to deal with Terra. And it's really, really, really tough to do so, considering the fact that if you shoot her with a gun, she can stone and flip a one and you miss. No matter what. Fun tidbit about that. I only ever got to use that once. Yeah. (laughs) But that's the thing is all it takes is your opponent to do it once and then be like, oh, wait, I can't shoot. Lesson learned. (laughs) So the thing about it is, is Tara has a lot of tricks. And if you let Tara do Tara, you're going to have a bad time. Yep. So Tara is what gives that crew the edge. Tara gets to activate twice. Tara gets to be anywhere on the map at any time. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so if you can control Tara you can have a better chance of winning against Terra. That is my two yeah. cents. Like, just bring Seamus, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> He's been the only one where um, I played against Why? him. You can well, just stone and he'll miss. Well, with his gun, but yeah. Well, the way that it worked was he was doing it in, he was doing something else and I couldn't just make it miss. Like, yeah. uh, he was right in my face. There was no hiding. Oh. Yeah, if he's if he's in melee, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah, and with the copycat, I think something weird happened. I just ended up folding over in, like, one turn. So <laughs> that's been the only matchup where I'm like, I 
can't deal with this. It was a combination of Seamus McMorning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like, I'm not sure what to do with it. So, but no, um, I, I really was at a loss. It was one of the few times where I was genuinely salty. I was, I, I actually thought I was like, maybe I shouldn't even play this anymore. <laughs> like <laughs> this guy just, <laughs> just bodied me, you know? Yeah. It was Christian, by the way. Shout out. Oh, well, good on him. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. taught him everything, and then like a couple months yeah. later, you bust that stuff out, yeah, and I was like, 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 what am I doing? That's here? totally the Sinpei, you know, yeah. kind of thing yeah. going on. So, alrighty, um, advice for a middle third player, uh, somebody who's kind of experienced, they've they've fought Tara before. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, what 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 kind of advice would you give for them? What's funny is like what I wrote down for both bottom and middle third, it was the same thing. Play one crew over and over again, but really, besides that kind of general idea. It's about it's similar to what Andre said. When you're bottom third, you're learning the game. When you're middle third, you're learning the opponent. So playing the same crew over and over helps you learn the game. And it ultimately helps you learn your matchups and learning how to minimize your bad matchups to the most even as possible. And I honestly am a big uh, proponent for play terrible matchups. Like the Levy Von Schill one I played earlier, that was one I could learn from that. I could learn to mitigate it. But what I mean by playing terrible matchups is if if you're on the losing end, just don't give up. Like figure out if the best you can do is minimize your differential, minimize it. Learn your lesson, write it down. Um, whenever I come home from a tournament, because I, I write everything down, I don't really try to use, I use the app for the setup and all that but i'll write down my scores and when it occurred and who got initiative flips and when i get home i reflect on the game and write down one thing i learned or need to learn from every game and that usually has something to do with um, trying to make your matchup more even or making better choices in the moment so when you when you're struggling in the middle trying to figure out how do i get higher up that's when you can start focusing on what does my crew do in certain matchups? What do I, and and not thinking of specific things like, Oh, you know, this guy has this combination of things, this model here or there. No, think of like what generally beat you. Was it armor pierce? How are you going to deal with that? Was it armor itself? How did you deal with that? And what about that didn't work? How do you get creative with the tools you brought? Not do I need to get a whole new tool belt? Because I think people rush to that answer way too quickly. Like they just think after three, five games of a crew, it's not working. It's like you played three to five games. You played essentially two tournaments. That's nothing. Played a hundred. You know, yeah. like that's when I'm like, you mastered it. You, you can move on. Yeah. Call me, call me in three years when, when yeah. you're bored with yeah. that master. Yeah. It's totally. like, oh man, I played 30 games of them. Like, man, you just described like my first month with that crew. But that's also another reason why I stick to one crew too, is I, I don't play as much anymore. I only play in the tournaments. I don't play too many practice games ever. So you want to, when you're in the middle third, it's about eliminating variables, the variable of learning the game and uh, the variable of learning your crew eliminate that by playing it over and over again. Now you're only learning the variable of um, the opponent and what they brought and what their plan is. You shouldn't have a variable of schemes to me because the schemes are written down in stone. You know what they are. You should know how you're going to address that. The, the main thing you're learning at that point in the middle is, you know, when people bring this combination of things, is that your weakness? So in mine is if you can control Terra, that's my weakness. So learn to mitigate that. Don't run away from it. Learn when you run into that matchup, how do I prevent that the most as possible? That's awesome. One other thing, and we, we've talked about this maybe a little bit, but um, the idea that I've, I've heard you say that denial is more powerful than scoring. 
Yeah. And could you talk to that a little bit? Because that's not something that is intuitively <laughs> obvious to many players. I don't know. Like, I know that differential is a big deal, right? Like, that's your tiebreaker. That's ultimately what got me in fourth. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't don't underestimate it. But a win's a win, bro. Like, take your 1-0. Like, so in terms of denial being more powerful than scoring, what I really mean is keeping it in mind while you score. Like, how you score should not really be affected too much. That's why I don't like to pick things that depend on an opponent dying or being in the perfect spot for setup or secret meetup or whatever. I'll pick sabotage and breakthrough any point because usually that's my choice of terrain, like uh, my choice of where I place the markers. And like, as long as there's no opponents nearby to deny it, it's not happening. So if you have that mentality of how you know how to score, your opponent does too at, at, at equal levels. So at that point, because you both equally know how to score, you need to be better than them at denying their score. So in and of itself, it's not more powerful than scoring. You win by scoring. But if you're both only focusing on scoring, you end up a game 8-8. Eight, eight. The, right. the denial being more yeah. powerful is 8-7, you know? Yeah. And the better you get at it, the more that 8-7 becomes 8-6, 8-5. And eventually, like in this game, I think it was 8-2. So it had the only reason why I kept that denial so wide. Eight one. Oh, eight one. Yeah. The differential was so wide because he could never get a can over like ever. In fact, I think I might've gotten his can close to his deployment zone. And on turn two, I think I had both of mine. No, turn three, I had both of mine in his deployment zone. And the second he got the other one over the 50 yard line, I just kicked it right back twice. So the denial kept the strat. And his schemes with breakthrough, I was like, all right, I engage you with uh, this prospector. And at the end of that turn, he was like, I got breakthrough. I'm like, no, you didn't. I'm right by the marker. And you didn't kill the guy because I waited until the last activation to rush him in. And because I engaged right next to the marker she just dropped, Lady J, she can't drop another one without killing him. She only has three AP. That's really rough to do with manipulative and all that stuff. Like you're spending focus or whatever. And, and the whole time, the marker's still there. I'm not going to get rid of it. So he has to place it somewhere else. To piggyback off that, as a fellow outclass player, if breakthrough is in the pool, nine games out of ten, I'm taking a prospector. Because a prospector <laughs> loves to live in the back of the board yep. mining for stones, right? And guess what it likes to eat? Scheme markers. So if you're going to come to my deployment zone and give me something to appraise, I'm going to welcome it. Secret outcast tech. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You mentioned earlier about differences in play style. Whenever I played you and you were doing that with your prospector, I was like, huh. Because instantly when I see a prospector, I think you're going to the other side of the board. I don't huh. sit him back. But what you were doing then, I was like, I see. Like, that's that's pretty good tech. You know, like, and so that's the limitation breeding creativity. Within the limitation of the abilities that both Carlo and I read on that card, our creativity took it in two separate directions and two different tools. Yeah. His was a denial machine for, say, breakthrough. Mine is a distraction that could do center line marking. Like, that's ultimately what players need to conform their brain to is the tool is very versatile. You need to figure out how to use it. And I, I think people pigeonhole models into certain roles when earlier I mentioned everyone's a scheme runner. Like everyone can drop a marker unless you're insignificant. So don't forget that. Like they are that tool. The two best scheme runners and outcasts, by the way, are Terra and Von Chill One. I've never played Von Chill One, so 
And I don't really remember much of his card. He has leap as well, and he has diving charge. Yeah. So he can he can go where he needs to go, and he can drop schemes as Terror well. Terror for sure. Um, I like to surprise people with uh, pride being a, a, a scheme runner whenever he needs to be. But really, like, yeah, Terra is for sure one of them. Um, I like anybody who can push and put a marker down, like the old uh, donkey dude. Uh, MSA Hodgepodge. Yeah. Hodgepodge. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, see, I have that model. I played it for years. I can't even remember that guy's name. Don't try memorizing things, kids. <laughs> donkey dude. I knew exactly what you were talking about. He's a donkey dude. Yeah, donkey dude, the most disappointing emissary model. That guy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in terms I of aesthetics. Know. I kind of I kind of like <laughs> Yeah, he belongs in Gremlins. I want a big bird. Speaking of Zabayu guy, we got a big wheel, so it's all right. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead and do uh, advice for a top third player. What do you wish you did differently? Or if you're talking to, and I know that you're considering yourselves not top third, but you made top third this tournament, but if you're talking to a top third player, what yeah. kind of advice would you give for them? You're not just a potato. You're a curly fry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm refined. No, the, the top third advice I, I'd say to other players is like, one, you're better than me. <laughs> but two, probably playing one crew at that point has no merit. You know, like you are refining your choices and now you are good enough to recognize your tools. So that a bit of advice of eliminating variables, like I still stick to it, but at that level, you're not doing it. You're playing to specific matchups. You're playing to specific interactions. You are talking about the things that like Andre and Carlo have memorized and I can't remember my own. <laughs> like that kind of stuff um, is is what you're focusing on. And I feel like because you we categorize people into top thirds, I would think that most players out there are nowhere near that level, myself included. So don't focus on too many of the specifics. You're losing the forest for the trees. I think that uh, you still should be playing to generalities and still being flexible. Top third players are refining that flexibility. So don't compare yourself to them. You need to compare yourself to yourself. When you play, you should be aiming for like the best choices I made versus like that crew is just too good. It's too OP. Like as soon as you start focusing on that, you're you're losing to yourself. Like it's all about the climb, do the reps, you figure it out. Miley Cyrus. Yeah, exactly. But it really is like the journey, man. Embrace the loss. Like um, the last bit I think of, I just thought of for top third players is don't get overly confident because I've done that. I don't like to make too many assumptions other than I think you're better than me because it keeps me more humble in my decision-making if I assume you are bringing it. But the second you let that down and you let your ego in of like, I'm controlling this, I'm whomping this, there goes your differential or there goes your win. Because that's happened to me way too many times. I mentioned a game with Andre earlier where I just charged because I was bored. That's what differentiates you from a top third player. You're keeping the goal in mind the whole time. Like, how am I scoring? Every The thing I like to tell other beginners, too, is every time you spend an AP, you have to repeat the question in your head, is this going to help me score? Does this score me a point? Does this ultimately score me a point within three steps? Because if you go past that, you're thinking too hard. You're, you're Rube Goldberging yourself. So, you know, like top third players have that figured out. And yeah, sure, emulate them. But that's like starting off basketball trying to be Michael Jordan. Like you, you got to go through the work first. You're going to take a bunch of losses, embrace it. Like top third is, I'm still trying to seek that out. <laughs> Oh, that is fantastic. Thank you very, very much. You got yeah. uh, 
Um, any kind of parting thoughts, any final plugs or anything? Um, uh, you know, I guess the, the thing I would say is right now in my point of gaming, I focus more about having fun. And I feel like a lot of our players lose that focus, especially when we're trying to be competitive and win. It's like, yeah, that's fun. I hate losing more than I like winning. But really, I feel like the more fun you have with your game while still being competitive, the more successful you're going to be. Because you have to get enjoyment out of the thing you're grinding. Like, it's a grind learning this game. It's, you know, it's probably the steepest learning curve in a miniatures game next to, like, Infinity to me. So, you know, in order for you to embrace that or welcome new information, welcome new matchups and terrible things that happen in your games, don't focus on what made it terrible. Focus on what makes it good and fun so that when terrible things happen, you accept the truth of like, okay, now I have to adjust to this. But a salty player is going to have a hard time adjusting because they're focusing so much on, I could have done this, I could have beat that. And it's like, you're losing the aim. So just make sure you have a lot of fun. And especially in this game, me and Elijah were having a blast. Like we were just talking so much smack to each other. It almost seemed like a fight, but it was really like, (laughs) we just have that fun. And I feel like it's more conducive to learning when you create a positive environment. So I always try to make a really weird, wacky game. And if I'm having a bad time, I turn it into a good time. Like, man, Nelly's kicking my butt. Guys, are you seeing this? Like, it's amazing. You yeah, know, just embrace hilarious. the suck. And the game that you and I, and the game that you and I played together, it was turn one, and yeah. we were like, "Well, let's get this over with." Yep. Punch you down at Levy's throat. <laughs> yeah. I was like, "This is like jumping into the Leviathan. Let's have it. It's fun. Yeah. Let's see what this this brings." And then whenever Bring we were done, I was like, "Oh man, that was a beating. I knew it was a beating <laughs> from the second that he revealed Levy. I was like, "This is my goal is to mitigate." Like, I want to make this a little tougher than, nope, 8-2, <laughs> or something like that. It was ridiculous. It was fun, though. Like, that's what you, you got to embrace it. You're not going to win every time. If you think you are, you're going to lose more often than you win. Like, I've seen too many players fall into that trap. It's a game first, you win second. Oh, that's that's really cool. All right. No, that is fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, my gosh. This is a fantastic session. Really appreciate you, Ryan. Thank you so Thanks. much. I'm so glad we finally got to have you here, Ryan. Yeah, it only took a fluke of a bunch of other people winning two to one, and I got a big differential, you know? Sneak in there. It's what happens with 19 players. 19 players let you submarine, man. Yep. Yeah. Coming up to number four, that that kicks ass. So, and again, I love your perspective. Uh, Love you being here tonight, and thank you very much. I think we're going to wrap this up. Thanks. I love you, Ryan. Thank you. Wait, what about Carla? Students of Conflict is brought to you by Top Dog Design. Check out topdogdesign.com for all of your Malfo terrain needs. Top Dog Design, 3D printable designs to enhance your tabletop. Students of Conflict is not an official product of Weird Miniatures LLC. All intellectual property belonging to Weird Miniatures is used with permission. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of entities they represent. Any content provided by our guests and or hosts are their opinion and not intended to malign any group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. Woo! No one uses them. It's crazy.
Well, it, it, 